This is Salt and Spine. Culinary is still an art form, and it's the only art form that we have that's required for us to live. I don't dance as much anymore, but I'm still living. You know, I don't paint anymore, but I'm still living. If I don't eat, I'm not going to live. So I can take this creative energy that I have and pour it into something that also provides me sustenance. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, Stories Behind Cookbooks. You're tuning in for a special episode. It's the 2022 Baking Month. We're celebrating some of the year's best baking books with a handful of author interviews, dozens of featured recipes, excerpts, and more. Make sure you're subscribed to our Substack to get it all. Today's Baking Month guest is Maya Camille Broussard. Maya Camille is the creative force behind Justice of the Pies, her Chicago-based bakery that's become known for inventive and her un matched flavors. Now, much of Maya Camille's work charts back to her roots, with a significant influence from her father, who worked as a criminal defense attorney but referred to himself as the Pie Master. With a mind towards social activism and community building, Justice of the Pie offers flavors like a lemon espresso pie, a blue cheese praline pear pie, and so on. You'll find all of those, plus features on folks doing good in their communities, in Maya Camille's first cookbook, Justice of the Pies. Now, Maya Camille joined us remotely for this Baking Month episode to talk cookbooks. Hi, Maya Camille. Thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Of course, we are thrilled to have you on the show for our Baking Month and to talk about your first cookbook, Justice of the Pies. But before we get to the book, we always like to talk a bit more about you and your life and how you got to where you are today, uh, and particularly how it relates to food and, in your case, pies, too. So I know growing up, your father in particular was a big culinary influence on you. He cooked a lot. He baked a lot in his free time. Can you talk a bit about those memories and what that was like for you growing up, you know, by his side in the kitchen? Sure. So I had a really interesting relationship with food or had rather, I still have a very interesting relationship with food. And a lot of that stemmed from my dad's relationship with food. Um, My dad grew up on the West side of Chicago in the projects and um, his father was an alcoholic. And so Uh his father would spend his money on drinks for everybody at the tavern instead of buying groceries for his family. And so my dad would often talk about growing up hungry or how he and his sisters were always hungry. And my aunts would say, you know, Steve, shut up. We're not hungry anymore. But um, you could tell that it has such an effect on him. But what I was later uh, in my adult life able to really truly understand was how it affected his childhood trauma affected the way that he ate food and bought food as an adult. And sometimes we pass on things to others or we project things onto others and we don't even know why we do it. So for an example, my dad did love to cook and he did love to eat, but he still Uh had that project mentality where he was buying the kinds of food that were not fresh, that were not healthy or uh, bots, mashed potatoes, you know, food that was, um, that was overprocessed, things you might find at a corner store or at a bodega that wasn't necessarily like something you can make a whole healthy meal out of. We always had Cheetos in the house. Uh We always had ramen noodle soup. We always had um, honey buns. We always had, like, we didn't, we always had hamburger helper. So we didn't have, like, meat, vegetables, fruit. We didn't have that. 
And um, if not for lack of trying, it was for lack of knowing. And um, one of the most traumatic things about my relationship with food that stemmed from my dad's own experience with food is that he always inhaled food. Like we would go out to eat and he would inhale everything around him. And not only was it embarrassing, but it was maddening to me because if I didn't finish my food, I knew my dad was going to finish it for me. And I am to this day still the kind of person that likes to save, you know, my leftovers. I like uh-huh. to go home and wake up the next day like, ooh, I got a half a burger in the fridge. But when I was staying with my dad at my dad's house, that was never the case. And it, it just made me so angry. I felt like you're so greedy. Why do you always have to eat my food? But my dad had this fear that uh, if I don't eat it now, it may not be here tomorrow. Yeah. Um, so that's one element uh, about my relationship with food. The second element is because I didn't have good food growing up. Now I want to cook the best food for myself if I can. So there's the dichotomy between my kitchen cupboard and fridge doesn't look healthy and responsible. But, you know, I went to the store, grab a few ingredients and really have fun in the kitchen and make a meal for myself. So uh, I knew there was really good food out there because we would eat it, you sure. know, but it wasn't always there. And it wasn't always uh, provided in a consistent, responsible manner. One of the things that I talk about with the work that I do with trying to teach middle school age children about being self-sufficient in the kitchen stems from my dad leaving me at home alone when he would go to the courthouse or when he would have to go to the holding cells, you know, to visit his clients and he didn't have a babysitter. I'm in the third and fourth grade. So I'm not a baby, but I'm, you know, this is at the age where parents start to leave their children at home by themselves. Well, back in the day they did. I don't know what yeah. parents do now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> but um, my dad, it was 11 o'clock at night. My dad still had not come home. He probably got caught up, you know, at the police station and I was starving All I wanted was a Happy Meal from McDonald's with fish filet, no cheese, light on the tartar sauce, and an orange drink. That is all Uh I wanted. But we had nothing but frozen chicken in the freezer, and we had a jar of olives, a brand new jar of olives. So I opened up that jar of olives, and I ate the entire jar. Uh And I broke out into hives. And when my dad finally came home and he saw my face completely broken out of red, he was like, what did you do? And I started crying. I was like, it's your fault. You didn't, I didn't, there was no food at home. I don't know how to cook chicken. I didn't know how to make chicken. You know, this was the only thing I I could eat and I was starving. Um, And, you know, my family, we laugh about that. You know, like, remember that time Steve left you at home alone? You You ate the whole jar of olives. But it really is no laughing matter. And so um, I recognize the need for middle school um, age children to become more self-sufficient in the kitchen, to have a little bit of kitchen skills so that they can provide something for themselves. So the stories that I'm sharing about my dad's relationship with food and how that trauma was passed down to me, not only um, determines what kind of chef that I am, but also the kind of work that I do outside of the kitchen. Yeah. And I imagine it took you some time and is, is maybe an ongoing process, right? To sort of understand that dichotomy and that you have these memories of your father 
on a Saturday morning, waking up and turning on jazz and making quiche and making pie, while at the same time, like he had this lifelong relationship with food insecurity and food access that he did pass on to you. How has that sort of, how have you sort of navigated that to sort of bridge the gap between those and to take that and move into a, a business where you're, you're helping others in that way? Yes. And also, even though my dad loved to cook, um, he also loved to eat. And I think uh-huh. that's very key for me to mention. So uh-huh. if I, you know, when you're a teenager or when you're growing, you sl- remember when we would sleep in until 12 because our bodies were growing, you know, and we could just sleep uh, until 12, two in the morning. I mean, two in the afternoon on right. a Saturday. So if my dad made quiche or breakfast in the morning, it's not like he saved some for me, you know, to have waiting for me when I woke up. He uh-huh. literally inhaled his food. And so that's something that my family and I have come together to talk about, you know, um, and, you know, we literally, when my dad was living, we would sort of have like talks about intervention, <laughs> you know, like a food intervention. Yeah. And I, I now as an adult, I realized that my dad was, um, he was, as many people do, eating his emotions away. Yeah. You know, um, it, so there was a level of that that was about the childhood trauma, but there's also a level of wanted to therapize in himself with food. And so I always said, and because I would look at my dad, when he would literally gobble food at the table, I would almost look at him in disgust, like, dude, can you slow down? And so when I decided I wanted to work with food, I, I decided... A, I wanted to enjoy it with moderation, but also I wanted to actually taste food. I wanted to actually have a moment and experience food and not just inhale it until I become full. I yeah. always eat. I'm no longer hungry. I'm always, you know, about smelling the food when it comes out and tasting it and describing it and, you know, trying to decide how I feel about the texture of what I'm eating. For me, it becomes an experience. And I try, even though eating food is very emotional, I try not to be too emotional around it because I don't want to rely on it when, you know, despite how I'm feeling emotionally. It's almost like alcoholism. You know, they say you should never drink when you're sad or when you're angry because every time you're sad and you're angry, you might look to the bottle. So I don't Mm -hmm. want to trigger any receptors and link that to food or drinking, you know, eating or drinking. Yeah, let's come back to the the moment where you decided to work in food in in a minute. It wasn't your your first sort of path, as far as I can understand, right? You went to Northwestern and Howard and studied theater, and um, were sort of on that path for a while. I know, right before, right as your father um, passed away, you were about to open an art gallery um, mm-hmm. of your own. Was that kind of your path for a while, and and you weren't sort of thinking about food for some period of time? You know, it was interesting. I've always baked, you know, uh-huh. but at home on a Saturday or when I had a sweet tooth and I wanted cinnamon rolls, you know, yeah. I didn't want to go to Cinnabon and get a cinnamon roll from the mall. I wanted to make cinnamon rolls from scratch at home. I was always begging my cousins or my aunts to teach me how to make, you know, give me your pound cake recipe. Um, you know, you can't take it to the grave with you. Give it to me. Um, but I always loved baking. But at my core, I am a creative individual. And also at my core, I love working with my hands. And I tell people that, you know, I do have an arts background in terms of dancing, in terms of theater, in terms of visual art. 
Um, I even played upright bass for five years. But culinary is still an art form. Mm-hmm. And it's the only art form that we have that's required for us to live. I don't dance as much anymore, but I'm still living. You know, I don't paint anymore, but I'm still living. If I don't eat, I'm not going to live. So I can take this creative energy that I have and pour it into something that also provides me sustenance. Yeah. So you're at this this moment. It's it, 2009. Your father um, passed away and you're just about to open this art gallery. I think you, it's a cousin, I think, who says, you know, we should start a business. You should start a pie business in, in, in honor of your dad. And that kind of puts the idea in your head, I think. But it, it takes several years before any of that actually comes to fruition, right? Can you talk about that and, and how you sort of decided that you were going to launch this bakery called Justice of the Pies? Sure. So... Um, yes, you are correct. My cousin Stephanie approached me at the repast of the funeral uh, and said, you know, we should start a foundation in memory of Uncle Steve. We should bake pies and we should teach kids how to bake pies. And, you know, not only am I sitting here in this grief and sort of being stunned and, you know, sitting with the with the reality that I've lost a parent. But I'm also super stressed and I'm super tired because I'm one week away from opening up my art lounge. So it was an art gallery with a full bar. And okay. it was actually my first entrepreneurial foray into the hospitality industry because owning a bar is, you know, is very serious hospitality business. Even though we didn't serve food or small plates, it was still very much uh, a, a perfect learning experience for me as the prelude to Justice of the Pies. And I abandoned that idea and I brushed it aside because I did not have the capacity. I really didn't. And um, three years after opening the art uh, gallery and bar, we lost it in a flood on Christmas Day in 2011. And we did not have flood insurance. We had fire insurance, but we mm-hmm. did not have flood insurance, which is actually really hard to get in Chicago if you live close to Lake Michigan, because everything that's in front of Lake Michigan is landfill. Uh, Michigan, I mean, everything in front of Michigan Avenue used to be Lake Michigan, so it's landfill. So there is highly susceptible area to flooding, and it's harder to get insurance. Lost everything, and I am, of course, dealing with being depressed about losing that business and seeing myself as a failure and not really knowing what I was going to do next and not, you know, I, I, I could, and not knowing if I had the energy to do anything else, you know, it was so easy for me to sit in my pity in a pair of sweatpants in front of, you know, my television and just say, well, it's me. But I ended up going to San Francisco uh, to help my cousins with their children. I think one of my cousins was, um, pregnant and uh, they wanted me to help with the toddler because they now had a newborn baby. Sure. And so we were walking in the mission neighborhood where they live and we came across a place called mission pie. And so before we even walked in, I had like a tingling feeling. And then when we walked in, I was like, Oh, this place is kind of cool. It's very casual. Mission pie is no longer open, but when it was, they had uh, the place was brimming with, adolescents. And I'm looking like, oh, is this place owned by teenagers? Mm-hmm. <laughs> because it's in the middle of the day and there are a whole bunch of teenagers here. And my cousin said, oh no, they hire teens who have been misplaced. And I was like, oh wow. Oh wait, hold on. Aha, uh-huh. wait, hold on. 
Stephanie talked about something like this three years ago, four years ago. Hold on. Am I supposed to be doing something like this? Wait a minute. Why? I'm having a moment. Yes, I'm supposed to be doing this. And yeah. immediately I went home. I told my older cousin, who was Stephanie's younger brother, and he was like, hey, let's do it. You know, literally, we went to the grocery store like the next day and just started buying a bunch of ingredients and recipe testing. I um, came up with a couple of names. I called my aunt and I was like, what do you think about this name? My dad used to call himself the pie master. So my aunt wanted me to call the business uh, the pie master's daughter. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. um, I came back home after the trip to San Francisco and I activated a Kickstarter campaign and, and I raised $7,000. And that is how I started my business Amazing. with $7,000 and uh, a share kitchen. That's amazing. And I, I just have to say, I love that Mission Pie inspired it because um, if, if we were in person, we're recording virtually today, but our studio is like five doors down from what was Mission Pie. And so it, it used to be a favorite haunt of mine too. And sadly is no longer there, although there's a wonderful new place um, in its absence. Um, but I love that, that that inspired you. So you start the the company, you start Justice of the Pies, you start out of, you know, a, a shared kitchen, you say, and from the beginning, you you sort of have this social mission, which you alluded to, right? But can you talk a bit about how that actually functions in practice, like some of the workshops and things that you do um, to have that community-minded aspect? So I formed Justice of the Pies as an L3C, and it is an entity that's not available in every state in this country, but it's similar to like a B Corps or if an LLC and a 501c3 got married and had a child. Okay. Um, so I knew that I wanted to have some sort of element of giving back because in everything that I do, I have a purpose greater than you know just making money or just having sales. When I did start the business, people asked me, are you going to hire returning citizens because your dad was an attorney and he was a criminal defense attorney? And I said, no, I mean, I'm open to it, but keep in mind, it's just me in the kitchen. I'm totally open to it, but I also did not want to be boxed in in terms of defining how I give back or what my giving back looks like, what kind of philanthropic activities I do or what have you. So I started the I Need Love workshop in 2017. The reason why I waited a couple of years is because I literally started the business with $7,000. I had to keep making money and pouring it back into the business. I had to, as an entrepreneur, grow the business to a place where I felt like it could sustain itself in some sense. And then I could turn my focus to um, volunteering and offering workshops. You know, this is not something that I get paid for. It's not something that I even raise money for, I would literally have a mentor who would say, hey, so you want to do a workshop for 17 kids? Okay, I'll give you $1,500. And then, you know, Carrie Go said, hey, we'll give you some butter. And then Osco said, okay, we'll give you all the tools that you need so that each child can go home with a bag of baking tools and accessories. So um started that in 2017, and I would do about one workshop per quarter. Um, I would love to do more, but I, again, I didn't have the capacity and it was just me. But when the pandemic hit and we were all unfortunately at home, I did do several workshops virtually. And it was kind of cool because I would pack up like uh, goodie bags and goodie boxes and then the administrator would pick them up and then disseminate it to all of the students. And then we would join each other 
you know, in home. And the reason why it was kind of fun is because it was very practical. You know, that each child had an oven, each child had a sink, as opposed to us being in one space, kind of crammed together around the table. We sure. each had, each person had an area, a working space. It was a very beautiful experience. So we did several of those. I typically partner with nonprofit organizations that already have programming in place and they already have a group of children that they are working with. I'm simply coming in to amplify and to enhance the already existing programming by offering the workshop. And also during the pandemic, I've been donating a lot to the Love Fridge. So again, I Need Love Workshop is one of my signature workshops and one of my signature ways in which I give back to the community. But I want to keep the possibilities open so that, you know, I can pivot and put a bunch of pies in a community fridge so that families can enjoy it. Families that don't have access or the financial means to buy my pie because the pie is a $32 pie. It is an indulgence. It's, you know, a $37 pie. So they deserve it. And whenever I get donations, um, immediately I'm donating pies to the fridge. And, and I I love that because I think um, it also so much of it is an homage to your father, right? I mean, he was the original pie master, and you're the pie master's daughter, and carrying on this tradition. But he also, I think, really instilled uh, a activism bent and like a socially conscious bent in you too. I mean, I, I know I read that he as when he was a student at um, Northwestern, he sort of led a protest against inequities that were happening on campus. He obviously was a criminal defense attorney career wise, like he kind of also that's kind of an homage to him and what he instilled in you too. Yeah, my dad definitely was a warrior, you know, for justice, for sure. Um, He could have gone into a more lucrative field of law, but he chose criminal defense law because he wanted to represent people and give people a fighting chance that grew up in the same kind of neighborhood that he grew grew up in. So, um, you know, he really was, you know, when he passed away and I did his eulogy, I said, you know, IQ aside, he reminded you of Forrest Gump, where <laughs> you were like, wait, and he did this, and he did this, and he was a community actor, and he was a master scuba diver and an instructor, and he, yeah. you know, was fluent in Swahili, and then he participated in this protest in 1968 at Northwestern, you know, that allowed more Black students to be enrolled in Northwestern the following year, you know, tripled the amount of students that were there initially. So um, he did have a very high Q, uh, IQ and uh, never attended classes, but always managed to get the highest grade. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, loved to party, loved to be the life of the party, but also really he he really was a people person. And I say, I think that sometimes when you are a people person, you naturally want to do what you can to help people. You're always asking like, yo, man, you know, hit me up if you need something. You know, yeah. what can I do to help? If that was him, you know, he always overextended himself. And my mother is like that too. And I would get frustrated because I could, I could see and I could sense because I was very intuitive as a child and I still am intuitive, but I could sense where people were taking advantage of them. And so I was just always very protective of my mother and father being such givers and wanting them to not be taken advantage of. Sure. 
Yeah, so you you launch the business, um, Justice of the Pies. You start to have some great success. Uh, not to like condense this part at all, but I want to get to the book. Um, so you you know you go on a Netflix show. You start to build these great relationships. The business is doing well. When do you sort of decide that Justice of the Pies should also become a cookbook, and how does that come about? So I've been hoarding all these recipes for all these years, and people uh-huh. have been for them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One of the things that I do, do take pride in is that I try to create flavor profiles or pies that nobody else does. Yeah. You know, and it's not only important in terms of your relevancy as a chef, but also to enhance your creative progress, you know, to in to show your peers and those who enjoy your food, the diners, like I'm different. I'm very different from what you see out there. When you eat my pie, it's not going to be something that you could find in the next block, the next neighborhood, or even in the next state over. Nobody else makes a strawberry basil key lime pie but me. You could get a key lime pie from anywhere, but you can't get a strawberry basil key lime pie. You can't have a blue cheese praline pear pie. You can't have um, a salted caramel peach pie. You know, you can have it if you come and get it from me, but you cannot get it from anywhere else. And I really, I grew up different already, you know? So I think uh, growing up with a disability, I always was in the other group. You know, as an other, I was very accustomed to being different. And, you know, when you're highly uh, influenced as a teenager, you want to be cool. You want to be a part of the cool group. You want to fit in. I didn't always fit in. And um, some people are surprised by that because they were like, well, you're always so confident. But it's like, yeah, but that doesn't mean that I was always accepted as a kid. I was, you know, the girl with the hearing aid, Mm -hmm. you know, or, you know, if Maya doesn't speak back to you, it's because she's a bitch and not because she didn't hear you speak to her initially. So, um, you know, I, I worked really hard to fit in as a kid. And then there was just a moment where I was like, you know what, I'm just going to be different. And that yeah. moment, I think, probably came in college, you know, when we, you get to reinvent yourself. But instead of reinventing myself, I just decided to accept myself as being different and embracing that. And a part of being different for me now is setting myself apart from everyone else to show how unique I am in my ability to create something that you've never had before. I want to give you that experience. But people ask for it. And so I guarded it for so many years because, hey, this is me. This is what makes me different. But at some point, I think enough people know that I am the I am the creator of this kind of pie. You know, I think enough years have passed where people know that to give me credit for creating these flavor profiles. And at that point, I I felt like it was really ready for me to. I was ready to uh, share with the world these wonderful recipes so that they can make it themselves, even if they could not come to Chicago to get the pie. Yeah, I think it is very true that you make pies like nobody else does. And I, you mentioned the blue cheese praline pear pie, which mm-hmm. I also noted is is the first recipe in the book. So for somebody who might not be familiar with your pies, and they see you know a pie book at the store, pick it up, and the first thing they see is a blue cheese praline pear pie. Um, is mm-hmm. so lovely. Uh, you also have savory pies too in the book. Of course, mm-hmm. you have you know chicken pot pie with a biscuit topper. There's a Italian beef pot pie which 
which I know the book has been in the making, but very on trend with um, the bear and the the Hulu show that everybody is uh, really into lately. And you also have a whole chapter on whoopie pies. So your your definition of pie is um, quite broad and includes, you know, sweet, savory, as well as even whoopie pies are included in the book. Well, the whoopie pies were really important for me to include in the book because when you're working with flavor or you're known for having a complex flavor profile, um, that often means you have to use a lot of ingredients. You know, you have to uh, really layer your dish with all of these different ingredients and spices and uh, vegetables or what have you. And some of them can't be a bit more complex and time consuming. I wanted something that a kid could do as well. I wanted the book to have several levels in uh, degree of difficulties. So I want I wanted to have recipes that were easy and you could do it and bake it for t- in 12 minutes, pop it out and put some uh, filling in it and enjoy it immediately. But also there's an addition there that may take two hours just to get the filling, you know, made. And then you have to chill the filling and then put it in the pie crust. And, you know, it's a lot of steps. And I know that Whenever you're making pies, especially when you're making an all butter crust pie, that is that could be a two day process because you have to let your crust rest, you know, what have you. By offering the whoopie pie chapter, it's not only allowing for younger bakers to uh, make something on their own without help, but it also allows for the typical reader or home baker to make something quickly and to have that instant gratification. Yeah. And what is it do you think about pies that makes pies so special, you know, as compared to a cake or a cookie or some other, you know, sweet or baked good? I, I mean, I love a good cake. I, it's sure. no secret that <laughs> cake is like my jam. But I think that what makes pie uh, really interesting is how nostalgic it is. It's very mature, mm-hmm. uh, but it's also not trendy. And that is what attracted me to it. Like when I do open up my storefront, I will be adding in other baked goods because I love, like I said, pound cake, but I also love cinnamon rolls. Like there are all these things that I want to do and all of these ideas that I have. And now that I have the space, do I have to be boxed in by doing just pies? Yes. My reputation is known for um, building a bakery that focuses on pies, but I also want to include other nostalgic treats. I think I, I like time-honored traditions and time-honored baked goods. And that's what pies are. You know, mm-hmm. there's nobody who says, oh, pie, you know what? I give it five more years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know? And then I think it's going to be so faux pas. You know, nobody says that. When you mention yeah. pie, people say, oh, my goodness, my grandmother oh, in my childhood. Uh, I love pies. There's so many people who prefer a birthday pie over a birthday cake because it just reminds them of their childhood. It reminds them of, you know, something that's company. It feels like a blanket, a weighted blanket. Yeah. You know, a cake is wonderful. A cake could feel like, you know, you're on a cloud or climbing a mountain or whatever. <laughs> I don't know. That's a weird way to describe it. <laughs> sure. But pie just makes people feel like, you know, they're about to grab a hot cup of cocoa and put a weighted blanket over their legs and, you know, have a movie night with the fireplace burning and then have a slice of pie at the, you know, at the table on the side, you know, they could really bite into it and really enjoy it. So, yeah. 
Oh gosh, now I now I need a slice of pie. You're painting such a beautiful picture. I have a slice of pie. <laughs> I, I need one. Uh, so you could have, of course, just approached the book with your incredible and inventive recipes and the story of your life and your father and his legacy and uh, the business. But you also decided to open it up a bit more and include a number of these sort of profiles throughout the book, um, who you refer to as stewards and and sort of heroes outside of the kitchen, people who are fighting for social justice and equity, often related to food, but not necessarily. Did you know you were going to include that from the beginning of the book project? And how did you sort of think about that aspect of the work? So again, um, whenever I do something, I want to be different. And I know there's a lot of amazing baking books out there, but I wanted to not, I wanted to have an atypical baking book. Um, That's number one. Number two, I, you know, when you do things for others, good things automatically come back to you. And um, that is something that my mom, my mom has absolutely always taught me. And I talked about earlier about my parents being givers and uh-huh. wanting to protect them for their giving spirit. Um, I always say my mom is uh, self-sacrificing and I've inherited that and I hate it. But I wanted to use this opportunity and this platform to highlight others because what essentially happens is I am influenced by food that I eat and cocktails that I drink to decide, you know, oh, this is a great new idea for a pie that just popped up in my head. But ultimately, I am influenced by people. And I thought it would be really cool to highlight people who are doing amazing work and to honor them with a recipe inspired by not only them, but the work that they do. I wanted people, I, you know, one of the things that people have been telling me that I find so comforting is when they say, you know, this is more than just a cookbook. Like, I've been reading this book like it's a novel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and I love that. Like, I, I because I want I wanted a book with substance. And it's not to say that a book that only has head notes and recipes don't have substance, but I wanted people to really sit with the book. Mm-hmm. And um, then get up and go in the kitchen. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. A, a both and. Well, we're a show on cookbooks. So we always like to ask if there are other cookbook authors or books that have been influential to you. Uh, you know, you're a self-taught baker, books that you've relied on as you've learned to bake and cook or or as you were writing your first cookbook that you turned to for inspiration. Not necessarily a cookbook. I mean, every chef, whenever there's doing R&D, they'll go to their cookbook collection. I actually went to a collection of handwritten recipes that I had around the house that I would call my great aunt and say, hey, can you give me that recipe one more time? And then she'd be like, okay, baby, you got a pen? You ready? Uh (laughs) Um, A couple of days ago, I just received one of the most beautiful surprises that my mom's, uh, my older cousin, my mom's first cousin, mailed me uh, one of his most treasured pieces, his uh, family heirlooms, which was a green notebook, like a notebook that his sister had with all of her recipes in it. His sister passed away when I was very young and she passed away quite tragically. And so you, you know, in knowing that you think that he would harbor like everything that she's ever owned. And many years later, he decided to pass that down to me. And it was such a touching uh, gesture and uh, a very 
non-selfish gesture because when someone passes away, you want to keep, you know, again, everything they have. Those are the books that I'm reading. Those are the recipes that I am reading. And then I'm trying to figure out how do I make it my own, but also honor uh, my ancestors and honor my family members who have passed these recipes down to me. I love cookbooks that have a historical element. So what Tony Tipton Martin did with um, the Age of Mama Code and with Jubilee is something that really resonates with me. But I also love cookbooks by, you know, pioneers of Black culinary industry like uh, Edna F. Lewis. So those are the kinds of books that I'm turning to because I know that there is something special in them that you may not see in every other book that's being released. That's awesome. And what a wonderful gift to have received um, that notebook. Well, we always end with a little game. So I'm going to, I'm going to grab our secret ingredient cards, which I forgot to put next to me. So I'm going to grab those. Um, and we're going to play a can we pie it game? Um, I feel like you do have such creative and inventive recipes that we're going to draw some ingredients and we're going to see if you can tell us how you might make a pie of it. How does that okay. sound? I'm here for it. Okay. We've got a little stack of secret ingredients here. And I will draw from the middle, and we'll see what we're working with. (laughs) Okay. First secret ingredient is cockroaches. (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever had a cockroach? (laughs) No. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) How might we make a cockroach pie? (laughs) A cockroach pie. Okay. So I don't know what would be in a cockroach pie. Pie, but I would not. Um, I could tell you how I where I would start in terms of inspiration. Sure. Um, I would probably start with a character named Cockroach from the uh, Hustable, the Cosby Show. Okay. And I would try probably like rewatch episodes of the Cosby Show in which Cockroach is actually in the scene or on TV. And maybe pull from like something he's saying or doing or an episode that was pretty memorable and make a pie inspired by that. Like I wouldn't take I wouldn't take the literal ingredient okay. like, okay, <laughs> how do I put buzz in a pie? But rather I would say, Oh, cockroach. I remember, you know, he was the goofy best friend of Theo on the Cosby show. Okay, let me go watch the show and yeah. see, you know, how cockroach might inspire me. Yeah, you. That was a tough one. You got around it. So let's see if you you get an easier one. Let's draw one more. <laughs> uh, granted, that was a hard one. Okay, here's a good one. Coffee beans. Coffee beans. Coffee well, beans. The photo that's on the cover of my book has a pie that has coffee beans in it. So is that the lemon espresso? The lemon espresso pie. Okay. Um, and I really love the earthiness of the crust and how it plays with the brightness of the the lemon custard and the lemon curd. I recently did a family reunion, which is a culinary event produced by Chef Kwame and yeah. Food and Wine magazine. And I served that pie, but I also served it with two other pies and I called it Earth, Wind and Fire. So uh-huh. uh, I think with coffee, if I were to come up with another pie for coffee, I would probably try to do something inspired by the places where coffee is known to grow the best, whether it's um, Uganda uh, or uh, uh, Bogota or uh, Jamaica. So I would probably take one of their classic dishes and infuse it with coffee beans. For example, 
Um, Jamaica is known for having meat patties with cocoa bread. Is there a meat patty in which the meat has been rubbed with espresso? Mm. Like an espresso rub in the meat patty and put that in a patty. Yeah. Uh, so it's Jamaica because Jamaica is known for a great coffee. But how can we take one of their classic, you know, national dishes and infuse it with coffee? I'm trying to think, uh, Bogota. What you know? What's funny about Colombia? They're known for French food because a lot of French would go there. So if you go to Bogota, it's like a creperie on every corner. Uh huh. So you have to go further south to get like more authentic food, like an arepa or what have you. Sure. So ooh. Maybe how we could, we could do something with cheese and coffee inside of a arepa, or maybe make a sweet arepa that then gets dipped in a cup of coffee. Ooh, I like mm. that too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow, oh, those are some great ideas. Um, well, if you if you um, do family reunion again next year, or any other events where you're doing earth, wind, and fire cockroaches could make a good earth pie right they come from the earth <laughs> just saying <laughs> i'm just saying <laughs> yeah well this was so much fun maya camille thank you so much for joining us on salt and spine thank you for having me it's been a joy and that's our show for today thank you so much for listening as always you can find bonus content from today's show and all of our episodes on our Substack, which you can find at saltandspine.substack.com for just a few dollars a month you'll find tons of exclusive and bonus content from recipes cookbook excerpts essays and more remember if you like hearing from your favorite authors on salt and spine and i hope you do please click subscribe wherever you're listening we also love to see your ratings on apple podcasts our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and our producer, Clea Worster. Our kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is typically recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen is now offering both digital and in-person classes for home cooks. You can find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books, and to Monique Lamas at Hardcover Cook. We'll be back next week week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love.